We want to read our scripture lessons for today. Our first one, our Old Testament text is from 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll read the first 15 verses. If you have a Bible, you can turn there in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to read along, it's on page 251. But you're welcome to simply sit back and listen to it read as well. Uh, it's about Solomon. He's had the kingdom firmly established in his hand. That all happens in chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and so we find out some other things that he does today and he gets blessed by God. Listen here to God's word. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building her own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you, all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Amen. Now you realize there's no temple in Jerusalem yet because Solomon will build that later in his life. That's one of the things he'll do. The Ark of the Covenant is there. David brought that up earlier, but the altar and, and all those things are at Gibeon. So that's part of what's reflected there. That can be confusing sometimes. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 38, is where we'll read our first New Testament text. Acts chapter 20. Verses 25 through 38. 
Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders on the Mediterranean seashore at a place called Miletus. Ephesus is a little farther to the north and a little farther to the east. And he calls him there because he's on his way to, to Jerusalem. So he meets with them there. They have this conversation. By the way, if you watched the Cardinal National game last night, you may have seen Adam Wainwright. Is that, was that his name, the pitcher for the Cardinals? Is that Adam Wainwright? Did you notice he had a verse on his pictures, on his, on his glove, his, his glove. You know what that verse was? Acts 20, verse 24. I just happened to see it. We were at Vanjie's house, and, and we were watching it. Boop, there it was. So you read Acts 20, 24. That's a pretty good thing for old Adam Wainwright to put on his glove. We're going to pick up at 25, though, all right? So we're, we're a verse beyond that, and we'll hear Paul's final exhortation to the Ephesian elders and their response. Listen here to God's word. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of, all, of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come up in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Amen. Could have been at an airport somewhere where you're, I think of the Marx family uh, who are in our mission house. They're going to be leaving on December 27th to go to Thailand. They're buying one-way tickets. I suppose their family and friends will be with them at the airport and They'll hug them and kiss them. Who knows? When they'll come back. Anyway, Revelation chapter 2 is our main text today. The first seven verses. <clears throat> this is one of seven letters that Jesus dictates to the apostle John to write it down and send it to the church. So this is to the church at Ephesus, the same church, the same group, with whom Paul just knelt on the shores of Miletus. That would have probably happened, oh, five to ten years before this was written. If we think that this was written somewhere around 68 to 69, somewhere in through there. So here's the word that Jesus has to the Ephesian church. Listen here to God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, <clears throat> I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance 
and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Almighty God, we are here before you. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us and calling us to gather together as a community of believers to worship you, to hear from you, to sing your praise, to receive from you this day. And Lord God, we ask for you to give us what we need. Oh, Lord, we oftentimes think we know what we need, and sometimes we do, but we don't always know all that we need. So give us that which we need. Oh, Lord God, we trust you. We know you're good all the time. The Lord, you care for us. So we commend ourselves to you this time as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Lord of all, amen. Here's a shocker. We live in history. Now you say, that's not such a shocking statement to make, but it's one that we sometimes forget. We live in history. What that means is that we must make decisions. We must speak. We must act. When you speak and when you act, make decisions, you're living in history. It's not a makeup world. It's not this or that. It's history. We need to know that. Now, we'll do this collectively as a nation, as a church, as family, but also as individuals live in history. Here's my point to you. History is God's refining fire. This is about refining fire, right? History is God's refining fire. He uses all the things of history, of our moment in time, to refine us to be His. We must make decisions. We must speak. We must act. So what does that look like? What might that look like? Here's a cartoon that appeared in the last little while. Let's see if it's up there. Can you see that? Can you read it? It's an interesting cartoon. It's a cartoon about our times. First panel says, I can't read it there. I can read it here. Mom, I want to jump off the roof with a cape. Mom says, nope, not going to do that. She had to act and make a decision, right? You can't do that. Next was the boy. He's probably about Jack's age, we'll say. He says, I want to drive the car. She says, no. Speaks and acts in history. He says, I want to play with matches. We've had our boys ask that. Well, they have gasoline poured on the floor. We said, no. Now, in our day and age, in history, what's happening now? I want to cut off my genitals. Whatever you say, honey. 
It's your choice. Isn't, you may take that down now, Steve. To me, that's a, a great picture of how we live in history and how the moment in history may make us say something that's absolutely ludicrous if we listen to the voices all around us. Did you get that? History is happening all around us, and history is pushing in certain directions, and we may feel the pressure of that, and it may cause us to say and decide some absolutely horrible things. I thought that was a great cartoon. It just pictured so well, you know, where we're at today. This past Thursday evening on the CNN town hall with the Democratic presidential candidates, everyone there, the candidates, the moderators, the crowd, bowed the knee to the idol of transgenderism. Did you see that? That's what they did. That's why I put that cartoon up there. They bowed the knee to that. Oh, sure, whatever you want to do, honey. Now, there was a little girl who said she was a boy, but what they're going to do to her is horrific. It should be outlawed. It should not be allowed. It should be criminal, what they're going to do to her. Now, we don't deny that there can be confusion about all kinds of things. People can be confused. We don't deny that. Uh, there can be even be great confusion. But the way our culture is dealing with it is bad. It's bad for all concerned. <laughs> and we should be concerned about it. So let's turn our attention to the letter to the Ephesians that Jesus dictated to John. <clears throat> we'll start with how we need to understand the letters themselves. I think I have a graphic for this, is that right? The first one? Five commonalities. Well, that's, that's, that's to leave that there, don't add anything to it, Steve, I'll call for it. Uh, there's some other things I wanna say first, so historical background. How do you understand those letters? You should understand them as real letters to real people who are addressed. That is, people who live in Ephesus, who live in Smyrna, who live in Pergamum, real persons, real letters, right there in time, in space, in history. And the situations, the people, we'll, hear, we'll read about some people in some of the letters, and the events are real events. They're not imaginary events. They're real events that happened in the first century. And Jesus speaks to them. These letters are not some kind of panoramic, prophetic vision of the church down through the ages. You'll hear people will say that, that already here with the letters, that the, the, these letters aren't to real churches. They're, they're, they're a picture. Each letter represents a stage or an age in the church down through history. That's not what they are. They're grounded in history. They're to real people, real events, things that actually happened. But the first century churches are instructive for us. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And along with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. And so to some degrees, some degree, these seven letters represent how the church in the third century, in the Reformation era, in the 19th century, and in the 21st century can address some common uh, issues that will spring up because we're human. So even though the events are real and historical, they will have application to us. I think of Romans 15, 3, I think it is, and there's some other places where it is where, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 10, but uh, where Paul says about the Old Testament, all these things were written for our instruction that we might learn from them. Well, these letters were likewise written to real people in real time, real places, but also for our instruction. That's why they're part of the Scripture. That's why they're in the Bible. That's why God chose to put them there. So just because we ground them in history in the first century does not make them old and outdated. It doesn't mean we can't learn anything from them. It means that we should because God has given them to us. Now, we have five commonalities in these letters that I've identified. I'm sure there's other people who have, you know, 17, someone has three, and someone has, I have five, all right? Just, it's a matter of, doesn't matter, here's five. I want to show you. First one is this. In each letter, Jesus always identifies himself in a different and particular way. It, it'll be interesting to, as we go through the letters to see, he says, uh, I am, and he'll say something about himself. That's germane particularly to that church with the issues going on there. And we saw here in Ephesus, I'm the one who, who walks uh, amidst the golden lampstands and hold, have the seven stars in my right hand. That is, I'm the one that's in the church and hold it all of us there. Don't, I know, I know what's going on. Uh, next thing is that Jesus always tells the church, I know your, and then he says what? Sometimes it's deeds. Sometimes it's something else. But he says to all the churches, I know your. Not just I know about this. He says, I know your. It's specific. I know your. Whatever it is that's going on. That's good to know. I know you. I know what's going on. And he'll, he'll name what those things are. Third thing. He always gives an evaluation. Good and bad. Two times he won't have anything bad to say or any complaints to make to the church, but usually there's good and bad. Isn't it good to know that Jesus doesn't cover things over? He'll, he'll confront us with, here, here, here's the issue. And he'll say, well, yeah, great, way to go. Keep it up. Number four, he always says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And that's often in the context of repent or what to do. And he who has ears to hear means someone who's spiritually alive. It harkens back to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has the vision, remember? He sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And God says he's going to send Isaiah on to a, to a, a message to the Israelite people. But he says, but, but I've, given, I've not given him eyes to see or ears to hear. And Jesus is going to quote this same thing. But he says, now if you have ears to hear... If you're part of the church of God, hear this. And then the last thing that's common I'd want to say is there's always a promise to the one who overcomes. Now, in the way I had typed it up, I had who overcomes, 
in bold, italics, and underlined. This is to those who overcome. Uh, now, let's leave those there for just a second. Let me see if I can get you to remember about a month ago, uh, I was preaching here. I gave you the five points of the covenant, five points of the covenant model. Do you remember what those were? I did it in the form of, of five questions. Number one is, who's in charge, right? We said God. He's always the answer. God's in charge. Jesus says, he always identifies himself in a particular way. He says, here's who I am, showing that he's in charge. He's God. Number two, to that was, well, well to whom do I report? There's delegated authority. And Jesus always tells the church, I know your da 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 So he's the one who's the accountability partner for us. He's the delegated authority. He's the chief shepherd. How's that? That makes sense? And number three, I said was, well, what are the rules? That's the covenant model. What are the rules? And Jesus always says, there's good and bad. There's things you're doing right. There's things you're doing wrong. So it just follows that right down. And the fourth thing was, was, well, what are the consequences? And Jesus says, repent. You have an ear? Here, do it. Remember the, the fifth question, a part of the covenant model was, uh, what's the future hold? Does this outfit have a future? Is there anything worthwhile? Here? And Jesus always ends with a promise to the one who overcomes a promise to the Ephesians that will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So it's interesting that those five commonalities we find in all the letters of Jesus to the church, says, also reflect the reality of the covenantal model that covers all of life. Okay, Steve, you can take that down. Uh, therefore, we may, make, we may gain great insight from each of these letters. This one begins, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, I've, and that's true, it's in the Greek, it's, it's an N. It's not in the church at, or it's the church in Ephesus. And that's part of what allows me to emphasize the particularity and the historicity of all that happens. They're in history, they're in time, they're in space, they're, they're right there in Ephesus. They're enmeshed in it. They're part of it. They're part of history. So to the church in Ephesus. And then he tells them that he's in their midst. He has authority. He walks among the candlesticks. He has the stars in his right hand. He says, I'm the one that John told about in his, his opening vision. He, I'm the one. I'm that guy. And he walks among them because he has authority. He has the, the angels, the ministries in his own hand. He says, I control these things. I'm the boss. They need to know that. And then Jesus says, as we said before, I know your deeds. He says, I know your deeds. And he's actually going to have like three things that he speaks of here. Uh, and he says, they're doing well. He commends them. He says, I know your deeds. That is, you've actually spoken, made decisions, and acted. You can't do a deed without those. I, I, I've seen those. I know those deeds. You understand what I'm saying? This is not philosophical. This is 
practical. I know your deeds. What you've said, what you've decided, what you've done. He says, I know your toil or toils. He says, I know it's not been easy. There have been challenges. You thought no one took notice of that. Maybe you thought I didn't take notice of that. But I know your toils. I'm not unfamiliar with those things at all. Now, you should be encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by that. Just standing here today. I'm encouraged by that. He says, I know your deeds. I know your toils. I know your perseverance. You haven't given up. These things didn't happen quickly. In our confirmation class this morning, I told, uh, I forget what we were talking about, but I said, you know, I'm used to going to McDonald's, and it used to be that Phoenix worked there, and I'd go up there and I'd order something, I'd order, you know, give me a double cheeseburger, fries, and a big old Coke, and they said, go to the next window, pay $14.78, and boom, like that, I'd have it. Isn't that great? Some things, when we are laboring for God, when we're working with God, when we're doing His will, takes perseverance, it doesn't always happen right away. Jesus says, I know your perseverance, that you've endured, you've gone forward, you, you stayed with it, you've not given up, you've done well. All these qualities speak to their character. Jesus is saying, you have a great character, you've done well. That's good. He says, they could not tolerate evil or evil folk. I wonder what that would look like today for us not to tolerate evil or evil folk. How would that look? Steve, what's the first one we have? We have a doctor over in the, in the UK, a Christian doctor named Dr. David Macareth. He was fired from his job. I think he was the emergency room doctor. Uh, for, here's what he said, that, that should the situation arise, he would not call a biological man a woman. I can't do that. A biological man is a man. I, I'm, I'm not going to call a man a woman. Here's what the judge said in the ruling. Belief in Genesis 1.27, that is to say, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism in our judgments are incompatible with human dignity. In other words, if you take the stand that doctor took there, that judge says that what you say is incompatible with human dignity. Do you believe that? This is where you get pushback from the culture. Pushback and conflict with fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals. Insofar as those beliefs form part of his wider faith, this wider faith also does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society. So if you believe that, what the judge says, your wider faith is not worthy of respect in a democratic society. Aren't you glad this is written down? So you can understand where people are coming from? Okay, Steve, you take it down. Uh, I, again, I would suggest to you that it takes a, a strong person, some toil and some perseverance 
to stand in the face of that kind of, of pressure coming from a judge, a court, speaking for the nation, as it were, speaking for the culture, to say that you are is not right, you're wrong, and it's not, it, it does not, it, it's not worthy of respect in our society, what you believe. There's another example from the UK. It's about a, it's about a, uh, this woman, she's an actress, 25 years old. Uh, her name is Saya Amuba. Uh, she lost her spot in a stage production after another actor published a Facebook post by her where she explained her orthodox Christian views about sexuality, including homosexuality. She stated that homosexual behavior is not right. She's speaking in moral terms, all right? She's saying, in terms of morality, is it good or bad? Is it something to be encouraged or something to be discouraged? She says it's not right. And that she didn't believe, quote, you can be born gay. She says these are decisions that people make about behavior. She refused to retract her statements, so she was fired. And her agents dismissed her soon thereafter. Okay, Steve, you take it down. I think all those, or each of those, and things like that, are evil, just so you know. I think that behind them, I'm not saying the people who do them are wicked, evil people who are condemned to hell forever and a day. No, I'm saying that behind them stands the enemy of our souls, seeking to intimidate sound, solid Christian people, and we have to be prepared like the Ephesians, where they're, they're commended by Jesus for their labor, for their deeds, for their toil, for their perseverance, and that they could not put up with, could not tolerate evil. We need to be there. That's a good thing. Uh, all right, go ahead and put up the last one, Steve. This past Thursday night, you, I'm sure you've read about this, the presidential candidates are there to CNN uh, town hall, table talk, whatever it was, and uh, Beto O'Rourke declared that those individuals and organizations and institutions that oppose same-sex marriage must not be allowed to do so without recriminations. What does he mean? Next one. There could be no reward, this is his quote from him, he said this, there could be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. That is, we must approve of what everyone does is what he's saying. doesn't matter what you do, we must approve it. That's where we are. That's the chaos into which our culture is descending rapidly. Psalm 2, verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's that. So as president, we're going to make that a priority. And we are going to stop those who are infringing on the rights of our fellow Americans. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To some people. I'm halfway through and I have two minutes left. Uh, I think things like that were confronting the people of Ephesus 
and they were standing strong and firm, and Jesus commended them for that. Now, there's one other thing that's added in there after he says what it has wrong. He says, they also hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, no one knows for certain who the Nicolaitans were, but from Revelation 2, 14 and 15, we get some idea. Uh, they have a teaching. It says the teaching of the Nicolaitans there. You're talking to Pergamum, and he compares them to what Balaam did. Do you remember what Balaam did? Balaam taught the pagan nations. He couldn't curse Israel, but he taught them how to put a stumbling block in their way. So they caused them to intermarry. Uh, so you see, that's, that's part of what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is, is that we hear it all around us today where there are people sort of within our camp who, who come and say, well, let's do this or let's do that. It's, it's all right. Uh, there are people who are always willing to help us push the envelope. In the Presbyterian circles, there's a thing called the Revoice Conference that happened last year out in St. Louis, pushing the envelope on sexual ethics. Our own past history in the United Church of Christ was always having to push that envelope a little bit farther, a little bit more. And uh, they, I think, that those who do that are the Nicolaitans that he says here. Now, Jesus says all they've done is good, they've done well. We should be able to identify with that. Our elders have faithfully issued statements of conviction, I'm standing on contemporary, uh, crucial, debated, moral, and spiritual issues. Say, but here's where we stand as a church. The elders have just revived. Now, one that caught up on us that we didn't try to see coming in time was the whole transgender, transgenderism movement. But this past year, uh, the elders spent uh, part of each spiritual council meeting working on the statement of faith, revising it, really redoing it. You should read it sometime. Because in that is addressed the issue of transgenderism. Uh, so I think, so I, you know, I commend all those things to you from our own congregation. You know, statements on uh, marriage, on homosexuality, on uh, women's roles, and things like that. There's all kinds of things. Where it's good. Uh, read them. Read our new statement of faith. Should read it with the uh, scripture proofs and look up the scripture proofs. It'd be good. But even as he says all that, well, good. Jesus says, "I have this against you." Jesus has something against them. Now, folks, I'm glad if Susan has something against me. Well, not glad, but it's all right. I'm glad if Rock has something against me. I'm okay if Ellen Pavey has something against me. But when it says that Jesus has something against me, I'm in trouble. Right? You understand that? So Jesus says, you've done all that, but, but I have one thing against you. He says, it's serious. It's so serious that if you don't correct it, I may remove your lampstand. And then you'll be part of history's dustbin. So it's nothing to be sneezed at. It's just one thing. Now, let's consider Solomon. Here's what 1 Kings 3, 3 said about Solomon. Now, Solomon loved the Lord, except he... Huh. So Solomon loved the Lord, except... That one little word's a big problem. Except he what? What's the next thing say, Steve? Now, King, this is in chapter 11, verses 1 and 3. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And God had told him, you know, don't intermarry with the other nations. 
He has 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now you can say, well, it's part of my job description. And it was. As the king, he made, that's how he made alliances. They still do that to some degree. But he, he, had, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. We could say a lot about that, but fortunately we don't have time. Save me from myself, okay? <laughs> Save you from me, how's that? Uh, but over the years, as he's doing a whole bunch of good things, there's a subtle change that happens. So what happens? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. Thus he did also for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Okay. Solomon ends up in a bad spot. And it all came from that one little except. He loved the Lord, except. Except. So what was the Ephesians one thing? It says here that you have left your first love. What's your first love? What does that mean? My lovely wife is sitting right here. I can remember the day she was visiting me up in Indiana. I'd been home for, for break from Princeton, and she came up from Texas, and we walked back in the field, and oh my goodness, I knelt down beside a creek and held her ring there and said, will you marry me? Wasn't that wonderful? It was. We had devotion, emotion, care for one another. It was really quite nice. One of the good things the Lord has done in our lives the last years, he let Pat get multiple myeloma. Because between that day and when she got that, you know, we did a lot of good things. We raised six kids, more or less. Some more and some less. <laughs> and we worked hard. We did all these things. And maybe we didn't realize the love and devotion we should have for one another. And she gets multiple myeloma. Now you can ask her, if she tell her, but you know, we have come to realize how much we love one another. How thankful we are to God for bringing us together. And we've sort of captured or recaptured our first love. It's been good. In the midst of all this, now, that is what I want to say is Jesus talking to the Ephesians. You've lost or left your first love. Do you remember what the first and great commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first thing. There's a second like, like it. It has to do about your neighbor. But first, and they were doing all those things about the neighbor, but first, love the Lord your God. Love. Now, Jesus' ongoing counsel to all the church will be, repent. Repent. He says this repeatedly in these letters. Repent. Repent means to turn around in disposition and behavior. 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul's final farewell with them, they certainly heeded his warning about watching out for false teachers, right? You heard that Paul said, watch out. You're going to be wolves and sheep's clothes. Well, Ben, they've been good at that. But did you notice how they took their leave of him? They prayed with one another, for one, on, the, on the seashore there, and then they hugged and they wept and they kissed him repeatedly. There was affection, open and good and right. They loved one another's brothers in the Lord. They shared deep affection with him. I would suggest that's part of what their first love should be toward Jesus. Now, some takeaways for us. <clears throat> do. Do deeds, do toil, do persevere. Let's not get weary in well-doing, okay? So let's do. <clears throat> Number two, be discriminating, be discerning. Do not compromise with evil. We must stand firm. Don't compromise with evil wherever it appears. And number three, keep a tender heart. Be affectionate toward God. How should we do that? I think, this is for me, maybe it's not for you. Singing is a great way. Singing to the Lord. I didn't always like to sing. But I began to sing, and I'd see the words that, oh, that's right. Now, we're going to sing uh, Amazing Love, How Can It Be, the song after we're done here. What a great song. Nancy, are you going to cry while we sing it? She probably will. She often does. Amazing love, how can it be that Christ would die for me? Oh, and sing that to him. Say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord Jesus. Keep a tender heart. Share that with him. And then pray. Now, pray means more than simply reciting prayers. We need to do that. We need to, I find the Lord's prayers very helpful in guiding and directing my prayers. But prayer is also pouring out your heart to God. Speaking to him, however you would speak, just openly, plainly, Lord God, here, here's what's going on. Help. So what do I want you to conclude from all this? I want you to remember that God's refining fire is history. We live in the midst of it. We must speak. We must make decisions. We must act. Let's do so resolutely, faithfully, perseveringly. But let us also be affectionate like newlyweds. Jesus desires our love. As we do that, we'll be overcomers. We'll stand against all the things the world, the flesh, and the devil throw at us. We'll be overcomers. And his promise is that we'll eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Amen.